Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. After concluding a four-episode cycle about bringing talent and energy into the longevity field, Translating Aging is returning to its roots at the intersection between biotech and the science of aging. One of the hottest and increasingly well-populated areas in longevity biotech is cellular senescence, a key driver of many age-related diseases. Joining us today is Robin Mansukani, CEO and co-founder of Deciduous Therapeutics, a company that aims to positively impact human health span by developing medicines that activate the endogenous immune mechanism responsible for the elimination of senescent cells. Robin, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited about the conversation. We're going to talk a lot about senescent cells in the interview, so let's start with a bit of background. For our listeners who may not be familiar, what is a senescent cell? First, maybe where do senescent cells come from? You know, senescent cells accumulating in your body are relatively normal. I just want to put that out there first. If you have senescent cells, it's not because you've necessarily done something wrong or because, you know, something's going horribly awry. It's this normal part of aging. And what's interesting is we can actually see senescent cells even in young people. You see it early on in type 1 diabetic patients. You'll see it in much older people. So it's a normal part of aging. And so that's what we'll focus on today. But let me go back to your first question around what is a senescent cell? And why do they become problematic over time? Senescent cells are cells that have been irreversibly damaged. So they exit cell cycle. Now, I should mention, you know, sometimes cells become damaged and they end up re-entering cell cycle because of DNA damage repair mechanisms. So there, there's a possibility when cells become damaged, they can just go back into cell cycle and be normal and healthy again. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like a car accident. You know, if you have a fender bender, repairable, you know, can go back on the road. But sometimes cells become irreversibly or overly damaged they permanently will exit cell cycle and can then enter a state of uh, what we call permanent cell cycle arrest as a path to becoming senescent. Now, the issue is not that they become irreversibly damaged. The issue is that they're allowed to accumulate and hang around. And so in a state of health, your immune system will normally get rid of these cells. But in a state of disease, instead of the cells becoming senescent they will and being eliminated, they will actually be allowed to accumulate and propagate through paracrine functions, where basically one senescent cell not being limited can result in many cells becoming senescent through cell-to-cell contact with that original senescent cell. And so that's when it becomes an issue is that the immune system cannot get rid of it. When the immune system cannot remove it, these cells tend to propagate and make other cells also become senescent. You've covered why senescent cells arise in the first place. That's some kind of irreversible damage that's not recoverable. And you've covered how they can persist and even propagate to some extent in the body. But what do they do and why is that bad? This goes back, you know, I think my first learnings in the field. And so kind of broadly, you know, one of the things that I struggled with in the beginning before I got into the space was, you know, I didn't understand why getting rid of them would be so interesting or so impactful on disease. And so that what really came full circle for me is when I understood why they're so pathogenic. And so the reason they're very pathogenic is a couple of reasons. The first one is that they're very inflammatory. So these pathogenic senescent cells give off 60 plus different cytokines. Within that cytokine storm are things like TNF-alpha, TGF-beta, you know, all cytokines just by themselves individually. People have built kingdoms of biotech around inhibiting just TNF-alpha or even around TGF-beta inhibition. IL-6. Yeah, IL-6, correct. Yeah. So IL-10, there's a number of these things that are given off by 
senescent cells, all of which tend to be very inflammatory, very pathogenic, very deleterious for disease. So that's the first part. The second part of it is around the pro-fibrotic factors. They then drive fibrosis, you know, like in lung fibrosis. If you look at tissue samples of lung fibrosis patients, they are loaded with senescent cells. So they're driving that fibrotic process, which is really a fancy way of saying they're, they're driving tissue degradation in the organs that they accumulate in. That's number two. Number three is that they actually compromise stem cells. So your stem cells are normally responsible for providing regenerative capacity, also can become senescent through cell-to-cell contact. And so you lose regenerative capacity when these stem cells become senescent. And so when you get rid of them, you one, you're getting rid of the cytokines and the inflammatory aspects. Two, you're halting the fibrotic process, and in some cases, reversing fibrotic processes. And three, you're allowing stem cells to come back and do their normal process of regeneration. And that's why getting rid of just bad cells, in these case, senescent cells, cannot just have a disease slowing effect, actually have a disease halting effect, and in some cases, a disease reversing effect, depending on which indication now early you get involved. Wow. So senescent cells are really bad, and they're really bad in a lot of different ways. I'm just curious, and granted that age-related change in the cells of our body are not under the same kinds of positive selection pressure as normal development or adult, the kind of day-to-day function, but do senescent cells do anything good? Yes. And this is a very important question, so I'm going to try to break it up into a couple buckets. So not all, first of all, not all senescent cells are bad. There are senescent cells that are known as replicative senescent cells. They tend to be low inflammatory or non-inflammatory. These typically aren't the senescent cells we worry about. They're not ones that we really get concerned about. They don't give off a lot of inflammatory cytokines. I'll talk later about our approach, but you know we're really focused on the pathogenic senescent cells that express the inflammatory cytokines that we just discussed a few minutes ago. So first of all, I just want to separate the field and say, you know, people talk about senescence. It's not a global bucket of senescence. There are different types of senescent cells. There's some that are okay. There's some that are benign. There are some that are really pathogenic and really disease driving. So I think that's the first part of understanding the field is that you want to target and focus on the ones that are actually propagating disease. Now, in terms of positive functions, uh, there's two well-known positive functions of senescent cells, very specifically, that is embryogenesis and also wound healing. So if you had open wounds or you know you were pregnant, you know getting a senolytic treatment or any type of treatment that removes senescent cells would not really be in your best interest because it is critical for those two functions. But that's a different class of senescent cells that you know we don't just don't focus on. And obviously those are two test cases where senescence removal could be deleterious rather than helpful. Gotcha. And one of the other kind of evolutionary rationales for senescence is that it takes genetically damaged cells out of the cell cycle and prevents those cells from ever becoming cancerous themselves, correct? That's a great point. It's kind of like the cell has an emergency break. So the cell kind of knows, okay, something has gone off the rails here. I'm going to pull the emergency break and go into a permanent cell cycle arrest phase. So I don't propagate whatever's wrong with me. I don't want to propagate the cells you know, around me or I, I kind of want to halt this process and take myself out of the equation because whatever's happening to me is not is not good for the rest of the, of the tissue or the organ. So yes, that is also what happens in the case of oncology, you know, happens in the case of even the DNA damage approach, which is not oncology based, that also happens as a way to kind of remove yourself from the situation. Right. And I mean, some cells get damaged, like classically epithelial cells that get genetically damaged. They take themselves out of commission by going even a step further. They undergo apoptosis, which is a form of programmed cell death that completely removes the cell from the body. In the case of senescent cells, which happens in other lineages like fibroblasts, the cell never divides again, but cannot itself ever form a tumor on its own. But 
if we were to then get rid of that cell, like the immune system does naturally in many cases anyway, who's to say that's a bad thing? So it's a good thing that senescent cells prevent cancers from originating in themselves. But after they do that function, they don't need to stick around. Do I have that about right? That's a good way of summarizing it. You know, when you talk about anti-apoptotic pathways and how these cells, you know, kind of, it's almost like they, they pull themselves out of cell cycle, but then they upregulate these anti-apoptotic pathways, which then, you know, are, are a way to also prevent their own death. So it, they're very complicated in a lot of ways. They're kind of like very, it's a bizarre mechanism they have to not kill themselves, but also not to provide any value. So it's just, just a very intriguing type of cell that, that we've only come to appreciate in different ways with every publication that comes out. So senescent cells are secreting a lot of different kinds of basically noxious compounds. They're secreting inflammatory cytokines. They're secreting pro-fibrotic factors. They're secreting growth factors that act inappropriately. And together, this secretory phenotype of senescent cells is thought to drive age-related disease. Can you give us an example or two of such disorders? So within age-related diseases, it's seen frequently in uh, sarcopenia, frailty, Alzheimer's, so neurological disorders, we see it there. The caveat that I want to add is that it's it's not about age of the person necessarily. It's more about biological age of the organ and tissue. So we see senescence also in young people, as I mentioned in the beginning. We see it in type 1 diabetes patients. You see it in middle-aged people and, you know, mid-30s to mid-40s with type 2 diabetic patients. You see it in uh, patients that have um, hypocholesterolemia, which they get very high cholesterol levels, very high LDL levels at a very young age. You see it there. So it's really not about statistical age, it's more about biological age and damage to certain tissue or organs. It also has to do with genetics. You know, some people have just, some people's, you know, based on their genetics, just have certain organs that age faster than, than other people. So it's actually not a function of age as much as a function of tissue or organ damage. Right. Senescent cells arise in a variety of different disease states. Are they thought to be causative in type 1 diabetes? Not to be causative. It's a complicated question. It's more about a positive feedback loop. So you have some function where the pancreatic beta cells are becoming senescent in type 1 diabetic patients. Now, from our angle and our approach, we see that typically the patients have dysfunctional or low volumes of NK T cells. So natural T cells in those patients tend to be suppressed or less functional. And we believe that allows cells to accumulate and develop. So you don't get, because your NKT cells are not active in those patients, you get senescent cell accumulation in the beta, in the pancreatic beta cells, and that allows for destruction of the pancreas, which then causes type 1 diabetes. So it's a different way that most people think about it. But if you actually track a number of indications where natural killer T cells are dysfunctional or lower in volume or anergic, it actually tracks quite interestingly. You know, it's the case in MS. It's actually the case in a lot of different autoimmune disorders where you have NKT suppression in those indications, and you see propagation of senescence in those indications specifically, which you wouldn't normally expect because these are, you know, autoimmune diseases typically in younger patients than older patients in a lot of cases. So that, that's been kind of our unique finding in the field. And that's part of the reason we arrived at the NKT targets. We actually were looking at the tissue of these patients and understood that there was some immune dysfunction at work here in combination with the senescent cells. Great. We're going to come back to the NKT cells that you just mentioned in a little bit. But for the moment, let's stay high level. You've just described a lot of different things, a lot of different disease states that can be driven or exacerbated by the presence of senescent cells. And therefore, it seems logical to get rid of senescent cells or, or at least stop them from behaving in these antisocial ways. So enter deciduous therapeutics. Now, deciduous is not the only company targeting the deleterious effects of senescence. And broadly speaking, there's two main ways to go after senescent cells. There are the so-called 
xenostatic or xenomorphic approaches, and then there's the xenolytic approaches. Would you be willing to help our listeners understand the difference between these two types of approaches to targeting senescent cells? I can certainly do that. Let me just preface by saying that the xenostatic, xenomorphic field is a little bit earlier, so that I think the data there is still... There's some compelling data out there, obviously, in that field that um, gives people cause to pursue that approach. But it's just earlier. I think the traditional kind of Gen 1 approach has been around xenolytic. So, you know, xenostatic, xenomorphic generally talks about how do we take these cells and make them less pathogenic? So how do we rescue them? How do we turn them back to being functional or normal? Basically, like, how do we take what is what we consider a bad cell and make it good again? The xenolytic approach goes, look, these cells are bad. Let's get rid of them. And so the question is, you know, are they both useful? Is one more useful than the other? And I think the data there is still early on both sides to know for sure, because there's only been one primary, you know, senescent synthetic trial in people with Unity Biotech, which had their OA trial, more recently their BCL2 trial. So we haven't seen the stenostatics or stenomorphics actually go in the clinic yet. So I think the data there is still a bit early to parse out how useful that approach will be. But, you know, the rationale is there, you know, if you can take a senescent cell that's pathogenic and make it good again and make it functional again, obviously, if you could do that safely and successfully, that would be very useful. The synolytic approach basically looks at the senescent cell and goes, okay, there's some anti-apoptotic pathway here that's been upregulated. So what that means in layman's terms is the senescent cell is sticking around and not going towards apoptosis because some anti-apoptotic pathway has been expressed. So the cell is kind of stuck in this zombie kind of fate of like not being useful, but also not dying and becomes very inflammatory during that time. And so the stenolytic approach basically says, okay, let's downregulate that upregulated anti-apoptotic pathway. And therefore we'll push that cell towards apoptosis. So the targets tend to focus on those anti-apoptotic pathways. But deciduous is pursuing senescent cells in a novel way using a small molecule drug that won't even touch the senescent cells directly. Instead, you're targeting another cell type whose job it is to get rid of senescent cells. Tell us that story. This comes back to very much first principles. And so let me just be very broad in general first. And I'll just say that the approach here and our mindset going into creating this company was there is a way that nature intended for this to happen. And it is our job to figure that out. That was a starting premise of the company. The second part, obviously, is if we can figure it out, does it matter in a way that can be clinically useful and translatable? So I'll talk about the first part first, and the second part I'll come back to during this discussion. So the first part of the approach is like understanding nature and how this is supposed to happen. So what we did that was unique is we actually looked at senescent cells from the single-cell RNA sequencing angle. So what that means is we isolated senescent cells, and we single-cell RNA sequenced them to understand what are they trying to tell us? Like, what are they expressing here that's different and unique? And so it took a lot of time, it took a lot of effort. I gave a lot of credit to my co-founder, Anil Bouchon at UCSF for, for you know, starting on this work. But generally what we found in that study was that there are a lot of things that are aberrant or unusual about a senescence pathogenic, and it goes across different organ types, different disease tissue types. But the interesting thing that we found is that there was something linked to the immune system. We found basically an overexpressed connection where we thought the senescent cells seemed to be trying to call the immune system. There's something that's overexpressed on the senescent cell surface that said, okay, it's trying to communicate with the immune system. And we kind of stitched together the data, we stitched together the findings from the overexpression of the senescent cell. And we, over time, began to understand that what it was trying to do was it was trying to communicate with the natural killer T cell. Now, somewhere there, that connection became compromised. It's like the internet connection went from like, you know, 5G to 1G 
over time because of disease or because of environmental factors or different things happening to that person. And so the basic approach became, okay, we know that senescent cell is trying to call the NKT cell. Can we make that connection happen again? And then two, if we do make it happen, does it actually matter for disease endpoints outside of just senescent cell removal? I think senescent cell removal is academically fascinating and interesting. It can get you a paper, but if it doesn't actually cure disease or you know move the needle for indications, then it doesn't actually matter. So the more important part of the company has been on the translation and the recent publication that shows when you use this approach, it actually is quite impactful very quickly on registrable disease endpoints. So you have a class of immune cells who have the capability to clear senescent cells. And under normal circumstances, or even at some rate during abnormal circumstances, these cells are able to find and eliminate the senescent cells. But something happens in a disease state or as a result of aging that causes the rate at which new senescent cells arise to be greater than the rate at which NKT cells are getting rid of the senescent cells that are already there. And as a result, the number of senescent cells in the tissue starts to go up. Do you have a sense of how exactly the NKT cells are recognizing the senescent cells? The recognition of the NKT cells towards the senescent cells has to do with specific receptors that they both, at a very high level, there are corresponding receptors on the senescent cell that also exist. They're, they're basically their lock and key exists on the NKT cells. It's kind of like putting a key into a lock and the key has to fit perfectly into the lock in order to open the door, which is an analogy for saying there has to be specific receptors expressed by the senescent cell that are also there on the NKT cell. And there are a number of receptors that intermingle between the two. When they recognize that complement, that array of receptors, then the NKT cell will go in and kill the senescent cell and remove it through it. the more traditional T-cell cytotoxic pathways. And is the problem that arises in these disease states that the receptors are missing or the ligands are missing or that the cells themselves are just not being activated for some reason? It's a kind of a combination. It's not, it's not one single thing. So typically what's happening as a first pass is that there's some kind of insult that's consistent and constant. So in the case of like diet-induced obesity, right, or type 2 diabetes, these patients are typically, you know, their lifestyle, their diet tends to be less than favorable for health. And so you get this senescent cell accumulation. And so you have a certain number of NKT cells and they can respond to a normal load of senescent cells, but they cannot typically respond in real time to a suddenly increased load and take those out consistently. So basically what's happening is you're flooding the system with too many senescent cells from some disease or from some kind of, even some kind of acute injury. And the NKT cells are just more or less overwhelmed. And when that happens, these senescent cells basically have numbers over the NKT cells, the NKT cells can't keep up with the demand. And so it's like you have, the rough analogy is you have like 10 workers who are there and diligent, good workers, but all of a sudden you have 100 kids to care for, and that's just too many for the NKT cells to take care of. And so therapeutically, what you have to do is you have to get the NKT cells in a more active state. Interestingly, what happens actually is the senescent cells seem to have an impact on the NKT cells where they can actually make them less active and energic and exhaust them. And so basically, you just need to rebalance the entire thing. You need to get the NKT cells back to an active and proliferating state. It's almost like in the sense of like cancer immunology, where the tumor cells can evade the the immune system. The senescent cells seem to have the same ability where they can kind of evade NKT cells. And so the answer to that is basically get a more active, more proliferating, engaged NKT cell party going. And that's what we do therapeutically. 
And there was a nice paper from the laboratory of your coworker, Anil Bouchon, that used a certain class of lipid molecule, alpha-galactosyl ceramide, I think it was, to activate INKT cells in mice. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, so the alpha-galactosyl, uh, sorry, alpha-galserf for short, is a known tool molecule for activating NKT cells. It was a nice starting point for us. We could easily get that compound, put it into animals. And what we showed is that if you give a single dose of this alpha-galserf drug, even in a non-optimized formulation, even non-optimized structure, et cetera, but you know, just a nice, decent starting molecule, one, you could activate the NKT cells very quickly. We see with a single dose in the animals, we can get the NKT cell population active and proliferating within about four days. And also by day four to day five, you see a dramatic reduction in senescent cells in the tissue of interest. So we can, so basically we would induce disease over the course of about four months in the case of um, the high fat diet type two diabetes mice. After four months, we give them a single dose of the NKT activator. And then four days after the dose, we see that the senescent cells in the adipose tissue, which is the fat tissue of interest, were basically eliminated all the way back down to control levels in about five days. What is interesting about that is not just that rid of senescent cells. What's actually interesting is that the endpoint of glucose tolerance also comes back into line. So we see that the mice that are normally glucose intolerant, meaning that they cannot metabolize glucose very well, they can become glucose tolerant and basically metabolically normal once again after about 10 days following the single dose. So the dose is on day zero, senescent cells are gone by day five, and by day 10, you see the mice are basically metabolically normal once again, all from that single dose. Intriguingly, what happens is that effect of glucose tolerance that's restored actually lasts for over a month. So it's a single dose on day zero has an effect for well over 30 days. So it's a very different treatment paradigm regimen than what's out there right now. We're talking about resetting the metabolic function by getting rid of senescent cells, but it only needs to be done intermittently because it is a beautiful reset that uh, is very potent and very effective. And so it does not need to be repeated more than four to six week increments. And another thing, I want to pull forward something that we talked about earlier in the interview. To the extent that senescent cells do do useful things, like in tissue remodeling and wound healing, it'd be nice to be able to give people an anti-senescence or senolytic therapy that only had to be administered every once in a while, that would then knock back whatever cells were being pathogenic in a tissue of interest. And then it would leave, you know, the other 29 days of that month, basically, to allow senescent cells that might arise and be present temporarily in tissues to do what they need to do and then be cleared by the immune system when their job was done. But one of the nice things that comes up again and again in talking about senolytic therapy is the idea that the medication would only need to be given sporadically because you are eliminating a class of cells that then takes a period of time to accumulate again. You don't have to keep giving people a chronic medication. So that in itself is a really nice promising aspect of this paradigm of therapy and something that I think is pretty exciting. Just to be clear, the mouse model data sounds fantastic. And, and just to confirm, these NKT cells also exist in human beings? Yes, absolutely. And they're not exactly the same structure. They're a little bit unique. So we've, you know, we've done our chemistry around making them optimized for the human immune system. But yeah, they seem to perform a similar function. The mouse data with the NKT cells, if you actually follow the literature over time, you see that you know mice that lack NKT cells tend to also develop autoimmune disorders. Same with humans. They seem to perform a very similar function in mice as in humans. Obviously, we will be the first company to try this now in humans for senescent cell removal. So I know that you said earlier when I asked a question about these diseases of aging that 
you know, you're not exclusively looking at people of advanced chronological age, that you're thinking more in terms of the biological age of tissues. And indeed, there are some situations in which you'd actually be interested in senescent cells accumulating in juveniles. But but I have a question, which is, do you know, it may not be known actually, but does the number of NKT cells stay relatively constant in the body as we age, or does it go down in older organisms? Yeah, it hasn't been properly surveyed. And by what I mean by that is it's very actually a very excellent question. So the majority of NKT cell population measurements have been only done in the serum, so in, in the blood. But actually, the NKTs that we're targeting are tissue-resident NKT cells, so not the ones in the blood, but the ones that are actually tissue of interest. And so that has not been adequately surveyed across multiple different ages, uh, multiple different populations. It's very hard to do because you have to go and you have to biopsy lungs and livers and, and hearts. Yeah, it's way easier to get a blood sample out of somebody than it is a piece of their lung. <laughs> yes. And so that's, that's not something you would do without a, a reason for doing it. That being said, it's likely that they will, uh, it's likely that the NKT cells will decline a bit in aged populations. We do see in the serum that there's a slight decline. What's actually interesting about the, about the question you're asking is we see the same thing in disease. So even in mice that have disease but are young, they have suppressed levels of NKT cells even at a young age in the presence of disease. So something about the disease is basically suppressing the NKT function. Are they one-shot soldiers? Do they die when they do their job, like a bee? They tend to. So the receptor will get recycled, which means basically it'll be downregulated at some point. So it's not that they necessarily die. It's that they just go, they go from rest to active to rest. And so what happens is when you stimulate them, you have kind of a basal level of NKT cells that are there and in trying to perform the function. But when you stimulate them, they proliferate very quickly and very rapidly. But they also come back down to the normal resting levels in about 10 days. So it's kind of like there's a party for about a week. They get going, they do their job, and then the party's just over. And then the next, you know, two months later, you do the party again. What's nice about these cells is they don't stay active and they don't stay on. They don't stay, you know, like proliferating for more than a couple of days. And once they spike, they tend to come back to their non-party state pretty quickly. It sounds like there's quite a bit of the biology that has yet to be revealed in this story. Yeah, there's still some things out there that we have learned over the couple of years that I think are quite intriguing that'll come out at some point. But, um, you know, one of the things that I always struggle with with a number of the other programs I looked at before starting deciduous is that, you know, safety profiles are, are paramount in age-related diseases. And what I like about this cell type, about what it does, it has an endogenous feature where it doesn't become too overly active or overly inflammatory through its progression. You know, sometimes the downside of immunotherapy is, is they can have downside inflammatory effects where they stay on too long or they don't go back to a normal resting state. But these cells seem to have a nice endogenous activity where they can really spike, perform their function, and then basically go back to sleep. Right. I mean, we've all heard the stories about the early days of CAR-T therapy when, to the exact extent that the therapy was working, the patient's life was being put in danger by the extremely hyperactive immune response, unregulated and often runaway, right. that would arise. And what you're saying is that the NKT cells you're deliberately seeking to activate, they have a built-in off switch that gets hit when the cell gets turned on, exactly the way you want a negative feedback loop to work. You can flick it on, and then over time, it's like one of those sensors in your bathroom, right? You know, you've, It senses you there, and it, it turns on, and then when you leave, you know, a couple of minutes later, it's going to turn itself off. So it's, it's a nice way to ensure safety and responsibility because, you know, age-related diseases, you know, some of them are, are near-term fatal. And so you, it's not like cancer where you can get away with more off-target effects because you're extending life or um, dealing with such a severe disease that there are no other options. You know, in, in age-related diseases, there are other options. There are 
you're not necessarily dying from them within six months to a year. So safety here is absolutely critical. We've covered quite a lot of ground about the biology there. And I want to come back to the purpose of deciduous and your clinical development. So I assume that you're developing molecules that target and activate NKT cells. Yes, correct. So how's it going? Well, where are you in the development process? And I realize you can't tell me everything in detail, but like, let's speak broadly. Like, What's going on? We've developed a really nice class of uh, novel NKT activators um, that perform as I laid out uh, a few minutes ago. You know, there's now we're in the stage now what I'd consider to be like the less sexy phase of the company, meaning like just development formulation process. So making the molecules in larger batches, making sure there's a good process to synthesize them, making sure that, you know, not just having a drug that can go into mice, but having a nice drug that can go into humans. That's really where we're at now. So it, we're not quite ready for human trials yet, but the molecules look very active, very potent, very capable. We're now clarifying the ways in which we'll make larger batches and make a nice clean process so we can make these things in very reliable, larger scale syntheses in the future. Okay. So time for the medicinal chemists to shine. Yeah, I think they've shined already in a lot of ways. Now it's more about the uh, the process formulation, CMC type folks to work their magic. Takes so many people to run a biotech company, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> it does. And it's fascinating how many different skill sets you can have just to make one molecule. I entered the biotech field a year and a half ago. I mean, before that, I was in academic editing. And before that, I was a scientist. I was actually a senescence biologist. I was so blown away by just how many different kinds of talent it takes to make a biotech company successful and how many job descriptions that were like critical to what we're doing. I never even knew that was a job that someone could have because I didn't know enough about how you get from the laboratory into the clinic that I understood what all has to be done. So yeah, I mean, this is a this is a long process. People express frustration about the delay in translating fundamental science into the clinic, but there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done. Yeah, you know, the analogy it gives you need a hundred things to go right, and if one goes wrong, then it doesn't matter what the other hundred things were. <laughs> it like needs to be the most perfect Rubik's cube that's ever been created, and it, it is yeah, it's challenging. But you know, that's why those people are specialists. That's why they can you know, get brought in at certain times. And like I said, it's the least sexy part of it, but it is the most important part in a lot of ways. Sexy or not, I have a ton of respect for our clinical team, and it sounds like you do for yours as well. So in the meantime, I'm sure you're thinking about how to go about indication selection. What are you thinking about broadly? We break this up into a couple of buckets. Let me just walk through first and just say, it. you know, at a very high level, I think indication selection for aging companies is one of the most challenging, underappreciated parts of it because, you know, getting the first indication to work basically means that you'll have a runway to lots of success, or if your first one does not work, then that in a lot of cases might mean the end of the company or the end of the runway, because you typically don't get enough funding for multiple clinical trials at once. So it is critical. We look at it as very broadly in three buckets in how we pick our indications. We look at first preclinical considerations, then we look at clinical considerations, then we look at market and insurance or payer behavior considerations. So within the preclinical bucket, it's about, you know, do we believe the model The model is translatable? Has it led to successful drugs in the past? Does it have a good burden of senescence that we can, you know, measure and quantify typically in our assays? If we actually remove senescence cells in this model, does that endpoint translate to the clinic? So, you know, in the case of type 2 diabetes, we've shown that removing senescence cells in the adipose tissue can make the mice metabolically normal again. In the case of IPF for lung fibrosis, we've shown that if we remove senescent cells in the lung, we can halt the fibrotic process with a single dose. And those are all those endpoints of halting fibrosis, of you know, making mice metabolically normal again, are all nice endpoints that could translate very well into phase one, phase two, or phase three studies. 
over time. So that's like the first pass of considerations. The second pass within clinical is around, you know, can we get a good patient selection stratification tools? So, you know, are there good ways to stratify the patients in the indications of interest? So meaning, do we trust that the patients that we think we're getting are in fact the ones we are getting? It's a, really a challenge in the dementia and CNS field to get those patients properly stratified. You know, things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease and lung fibrosis, it's, it's much more clear, much more obvious who has a disease and who doesn't. They tend to be a little bit less heterogeneic than in the CNS field. So I think that's why, you know, you see a lot of companies focusing on those indications first. Two, obviously, how does it, you know, stack up against other approaches in the field? Who else is going after this space? Is it senescence plays? Are they, you know, non-senescent plays? You know, where if we were successful, how would this actually compete in the market? And then finally, you know, what is the market growing? Is it getting larger? What does it project to be? And then, you know, what do payers actually put into these medicines for this indication? So, one of the reasons people go after IPF is that the payers will put in about 100K a year per IPF patient. So it's a really nice margin if you're going with Senolytics or you know our approach for immune-mediated analysis because you'll know you'll get a nice margin on your work if you are successful there. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with the disease, IPF is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, currently terminal fibrotic disease of the lung. Okay, well, you've done a really good job, Robin, of explaining how you're thinking about indications. And I think that uh, certainly my imagination was running a little bit wild while you were talking. I'm sure some of the listeners were too. Do you want to tell us in general where you're coming down about preferences for indications? Yeah, sure. So I can speak about the data we have right now, now that you know could lead to the clinic. I'll also talk about kind of a broader approach we have to indication selection. So, you know, we have really nice metabolic data right now in the type 2 diabetes model that can be extended to... Keep in mind that type 2 diabetes tends to be more systemic than I think people appreciate. It tends not to just be a disease of, of diabetes. It tends to be a disease of diabetes, the heart, the liver, the lung, the kidney, all of it together. So there's a nice systemic way to approach that where we can potentially show effects on multiple organs at once. You know, Keep in mind, our approach is one that is systemic, so it's not a does not need to be targeted to one tissue type specifically. This actually is a something we would give it systemically to people, and you would get global reduction of senescent cells from the neck down. So it's a really nice way to actually treat comorbidities of aging because, you know, typically when you're aged and you have some kind of disease, you typically have, you're likely to have having multiple diseases tends to be pretty high. So in theory, based on the early data, this would actually treat a couple different diseases in parallel with single treatments done systemically. So diabetes is one nice example of that. What people don't appreciate about IPF, which is the second one that we're looking at, is that half of IPF patients actually have type 2 diabetes. So these things kind of run together as you age. Um, even uh, half of cardiovascular patients also have kidney disease. So you can also operate on the cardiorenal axis. That's really where we're thinking about first is, you know, somewhere in these comorbidities that we think we can find both primary and secondary endpoints in what's considered one disease, but in reality is actually multiple diseases happening in parallel. Cool. So you've got clinical development stuff happening that you talked about earlier. You've got the indication selection going on. When are those two streams going to come together? When do you anticipate first order, not going to hold you to it? When do you anticipate initiating a first trial? Yeah. So as the current plans go within the next couple of years, you know, that it could be a little bit quicker depending on how development comes together. But, um, you know, we have, like I said, nice, nicely molecules and just need to push them towards the clinic. We just have to do our pre-IND meeting with the FDA, submit for the IND. It's in the horizon. I can see now, you know, it's striking because, you know, a couple of years ago, we started the company with an idea based on a lot of data, a lot of numbers, a lot of, you know, single cell data. Now we're thinking about, you know, a couple of years later, we're thinking about actually going into our first human patient 
So it's quite exciting. I just think you, know, you need to be responsible about it. You know, you want to make sure the first one succeeds. And so I think picking and selecting the first indication as the right one is the most critical piece. I agree. And that actually gives me a nice segue into a question I've been wanting to ask you. So there's a lot of many different senolytic approaches have been proposed and some have been tested. One of them was a closely watched clinical trial that you mentioned earlier for osteoarthritis by Unity Biotechnology. And unfortunately, for people who are suffering from that disease, that trial failed in phase two. And Unity is now focusing on their ophthalmic programs and neurological programs. I'll also mention in this regard, there was a phase three failure of a rapamycin analog for an infectious disease indication. And I understand that that's not a senescence play, but Rapamycin is a xenostatic drug, and there's a school of thought that any effect of a rapalog would be mediated in part by ameliorating the negative effects of senescence. There's been a couple of times when prominent trials that were either directly in senescence in acetylytic approach or kind of the next town over didn't work out as well as we might have hoped. So you're the CEO of a company in kind of broadly the longevity biotech space that's taking a senolytic approach. I'm going to finally now arrive at my question. (laughs) Have previous trial failures created any kind of headwinds for Deciduous as you raise money or in any other way? I think it's fair to ask. Has it created headwinds? Yes. Does it matter to us? No. Our job is to develop good drugs that work. I think it's very easy to explain what went wrong with the previous trials, you know, with Unity. You know, I think in that case of that indication selection there, you know, OA is difficult to measure effects because you're, you're, it's, it's largely these PROs, which is patient-reported outcomes. And that, that can have a high placebo, right? So you have a kind of a, a hard window to get out of already because you're going to have patient-reported outcomes are going to give you that, that placebo effect. And so you've got to be able to overcome that and then shift to see on top of that. And the markers for that are not that great. And so you're really kind of back to this, you know, does this patient feel better according to them or do they not? And that is a very difficult readout. Secondly, I think the target was a first-gen target that, you know, you know, there's challenges with the target they went after of having off-target effects. You have to go directly into the knee, you have to go closed organ. So those are kind of the challenges. So, you know, I think if you understand that study in that trial, I don't think you'd be reasonably discouraged about the impact of senescent cells because it's been shown so many times in different models that removing senescent cells has an impact on disease endpoints. In my opinion, though, OA with that target and that drug were, was probably one too many things to overcome to show success. And like I said, in the beginning of the answer, you know, it doesn't matter if you created headwinds for us or not. You know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change my job at all day to day. My job is to, you know, run the company, lead us towards the clinical studies and generate good data. And I think we have good supporting efficacy data already to support that. Well said. And of course, you're right about what your job description is. When I talked about headwinds, I was wondering primarily about funding. If investors are skeptical because of a prominent trial failure, it can be harder to raise money. And if it's harder to raise money, it's harder to do all of the things that you described to make good drugs that work. It sounds like you're not having a problem with it. Yeah, I think it's problems are relative when you live in Silicon Valley. You know, <laughs> you have access to capital. You have access to people who have the capital. You have access to people who can be helpful. I don't live in that world, just to be very blunt about it. I, I come, I'm a very, very much an entrepreneur at heart. I did my last company for far less capital than than we've got into deciduous. So I do pride myself on the fact that I can kind of live and thrive in any, you know, mostly any situation. I don't I don't need things to be laid out for me. I don't need things to be handed, you know, to us just because, you know, one company didn't succeed. It kind of just is somewhat irrelevant to me as to what's going on outside of of our company walls because I feel like we have the resources, we have the people we need, we have the funding. It's now just our job to make it go. 
Fair enough. I mean, as we've said before, there have been other people, other types of approaches that have gone for a scenalytic strategy. Is Deciduous just another shot on goal in scenalytics, or is there some specific reason that your approach is optimistic or more likely to work than others? I do think there's other approaches out there that, that have good efficacy in the preclinical studies. I, you know, To answer your question very broadly, first, the time will really be told, the, the tale of the tape will really be told in the clinical studies. So for me to sit here and say that this is going to be the be-all, end-all, senescence, ablation, and nothing else will matter, I think would be way ahead of ourselves. And I think any company that said that at the preclinical stage would fit in that category. So I would just say, you know, I don't want to talk about other companies in this situation, you know, because I think it's, like I said, it has to be proven on clinical studies. I'll just say that, you know, our founding premise, I think, is very solid. You know, there, there's a way that nature intended for this to happen. There's a way that we know that nature makes it happen. We've done the hard work to figure out what that process is, and we've done the hard work to figure out how to make that happen again. So we just think it's a very normal, natural thing that we are doing therapeutically that was intended by nature to have happened this way. And we happen to be piggybacking off of the way things were intended to be. We've covered what's next for your company over the next couple of years. So I'm going to close as we move toward the end of our interview with what's becoming our standard closing question here at Translating Aging. Suppose that you and I were to sit down in five years for a follow-up interview. And I would start out by saying, Robin, Deciduous Therapeutics has had great success. What does that success look like? I think it looks like impacting patients in a meaningful way. And I don't say that lightly. I've, you know, our whole biological premise is around removing senescent cells via the immune system. That's great. But if it doesn't treat disease in ways that makes people's lives better, then we really haven't done our job. So I, I think that's number one. Number two, we go with a small molecule approach. We have nice molecules that we can scale up that are you know, not cost prohibitive in any way. So, I, so the second part of it I'd say is you know, globally, have we had an impact? And if the answer was yes, I'd be very happy. If we only had an impact on CAR-T therapies where they tend to be more expensive, probably more difficult to access for certain economic populations, then to me, that would not be successful. So I, I look at it as our potential impact can be very global because the cost for drugs is not going to be very high. I look at our impact as being, you know, multi-system, multi-organ. So meaning that we're not just treating one single disease at a time or treating multiple things in parallel. And then we're having a huge impact on people's lives and their functionality. You know, the senescent cells tend to make, you know, aging and frailty kind of more severe than it needs to be. And I think when you can make people healthy again, systemically, it allows them to be more impactful towards their own society. So I think that's the downstream effect that I'd love to see, not just in the U.S., not just with wealthy people, but globally to all people in all parts of the world. And I think if we do that, I will be overjoyed with fulfillment. I am looking forward to that follow-up interview. And uh, I must say that we at Translating (laughs) Aging and BioAge Labs are wishing you the best of luck. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on. So I appreciate it. Robin Mansakani of Deciduous Therapeutics, thank you so much for joining us today. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.